Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and online at gtownradio.com. This is What Do You Know About That? A radio show about anything and everything happening in our community, our city, and our world. Here are your hosts, Eric Gershnow and Mary Angela Saavedra. Hey everybody, happy Thursday. It's Thursday in the middle of winter. We have six more weeks of winter thanks to that dumb groundhog who saw his shadow, stupid Punxsutawney <laughs> Phil. I'm not holding back, this is really how I feel about it. Yeah, t- t- just let it all out. Tell me how you really feel. <laughs> I was really hoping for an early spring this year. I mean, based on the weird weather we've been having so far, I was like, surely spring is coming early. But no, Punxsutawney Phil had a different idea. He saw a stupid shadow, which means six more weeks of winter. You know, Yay. I think they only came up with this whole myth with the groundhog just so they could have something to blame. Sure, 100%. When the weather goes south. Yeah, no, absolutely. But... Anyway, here we are in February with six more weeks of winter looking at us. So, hey, how's it's it going, It's okay. Eric? We'll survive. <laughs> Maybe get a little bit of snow. I mean, so far, yeah, we haven't. Knock on wood. Yeah, right. But. Exactly. Where's the wood? I'm knocking right now. <laughs> All I can say is I'm glad I don't live in Texas right now. Yeah, no, Because like sure. half a million people are without power down there. Yeah. Uh-huh. But uh, do you have some factor crap for me today? I sure do. And ironically enough, you're going to just love this one. So, factor crap, Thursday, February 9th, the official Groundhog Day's Groundhog, Punxsutawney Phil, is married. Fact or crap? No, absolutely not. They don't dig out Punxsutawney Phil and his wife from his log. It's just him and his log. There's no wife. That's total crap. And it's what? fact. So Punxsutawney Phil's wife is known as Phyllis. Of Apparently, course. it's a well-grounded relationship. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, well, then Phyllis gets no love. If he's married, he is certainly keeping her in the shadows. I don't hear no kind of plugs about Punxsutawney Phyllis. I only ever hear about Phil. And why is he the only one they bring out of the log? She should be included in that. Uh-huh. Well, I'm it's, writing a sternly whole thing's worded fabricated letter. anyway, <laughs> because if we're being truly honest, it's like Punxsutawney Phil the, the 12th or something. Sure. I mean, how many groundhogs do you go through? Punxsutawney Phil is not ageless. Right. I'm writing a strongly worded letter. <laughs> to who? I don't know. Whoever's in charge of this I whole Punxsutawney know. Phil situation. The people in Gobbler's Knob. Isn't that the name of the place in Yes, Gobbler's Knob. <laughs> you need to bring Phyllis out. Phyllis needs to look. I bet you Phyllis wouldn't have seen her shadow. I bet Phyllis would have said there is a spring coming soon. Yeah, we need... I'm, I think I'm, Phyllis is like, whatever, get me a Pepsi. <laughs> I'm going to start a petition. I don't want Phyllis fired. It's going to be Phyllis from now on. Okay. <laughs> well, there you go. Factor right, crap. Factor crap. Poo. Well, Super exciting. Hey, what's on uh, your radar in uh, the For the neighborhood? Yeah, some interesting things, actually, speaking of animals, since that seems to be our topic, it is fitting that my neighborhood items today involve stuff going on with animals in our neighborhood. Well, not exactly. One of them does. For starters, I saw a post that was just posted like yesterday about a squirrel invasion. Squirrels. Squirrels are invading the neighborhood. and the uh, sp- Squirrels have, have invaded the neighborhood. 
Well, I mean, yes, but in a kind of aggressive way. This post says, uh, my neighbors and I have experienced a squirrel invasion. After close examination of our properties, dozens of peanut shells were found. It appears as though someone in the area is treating these rodents like pets. These animals have become a real problem. Professional animal control folks have been hired to deal with the issues. So it is true. You have to be very careful, particularly in this area. If you leave food out, if you are feeding the wildlife in the area, they will, in fact, continue to return to your property or to where they were being mine, fed, mine, right? Mine. Exactly. Like, hey, this is where we go for dinner. There are peanuts here. There's a lot of comments on this thread. They, again, kind of span the, <laughs> the, the gamut. Some people are just like, leave the squirrels alone. People are more annoying than squirrels. Like, let them have their food. It's fine. And then the other people are like, yeah, well, they chew and bore their way into your homes and into your roofs, which we've experienced. Remember the squirrels that used to live in, above our uh, our kitchen Oh yeah, for a while? So I can understand why you wouldn't want to attract squirrels to your property. Yep. You know, then there are other people that are be like, somebody leaves peanuts and seeds out much like you would in a bird feeder. So if we do that for the birds, why can't we do that for the squirrels? Which is a perfectly valid point, but... Birds don't usually it's, bore into I guess all about your... the intention. Like the bird feeder is not intended for the squirrels. The squirrels just happen to recognize, oh, hey, look, there's a bird feeder. There's a bird feeder. I can get some food. Yeah. And I guess birds, I mean, but birds can be invasive. They can build nests. But remember that time when I talked about the, the post that was on here, people complaining about the nest that had appeared in their covered porch area. And then they were kind of like... What do I do? Do I just get rid of it when the birds leave or will the birds come back? And they were like, no, like birds will come back to that nest. Like, don't get rid of it. They're just birds. Leave them be. It's nice. Yeah. <sighs> but look, any small animal can be in an invasive species when it comes to invading your home. And birds will usually go up into the rafters or we had actually in the overhang above the front porch, there was a little gap and there were birds nesting up in there. Mm -hmm. Hornets, wasps. Well, okay, hor hor hornets, that's a different... Now we're kind of like crossing over into insect color. land, but I guess it's one thing if you're going out to a public space and you're throwing out peanuts and seeds to attract squirrels on the bench versus right outside of your front door and you're inviting rodents to come to your house thinking, oh, I'm going to expect food every time I come here. Right. I mean, I get that. Here, Here's a post. It says, thank God the squirrels and birds that me and one of my neighbors have been feeding for 15 plus years are chill. They cause no damage that I know of or have heard of any of the other neighbors complaining of. It keeps them from having to look in the trash for food. Sorry, your experience has been different. <laughs> this person was trying to be very pleasant, except then he is immediately met with a lot of hostility from other people. What do squirrels do that are troublesome, you ask? Well, we would wait patiently all summer for the first tomato to ripen in our garden, and then a squirrel would come along and take it right away before we ever had a chance to eat it. They would also eat our ripened flowers and herbs from the pots on my patio. They've chewed up the jack-o'-lanterns on my porch, which my family and I have carefully carved. We haven't bothered to carve one in years because the squirrels are evil creatures. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Someone's got a vendetta against the squirrels. I mean, if you're gardening, you need to know that squirrels exist but so do voles and so do groundhogs and so do raccoons and every other creature that lives in this area i mean we are in the city but we are very close to 
green space. The Wissahickon cuts right through here. Right. I mean, exactly. So if you're going to garden in your yard, understand that you need to protect it. You need to put a fence around it. You need to... That or you need to set up another special little garden just for the little rodents. Right. So that they have a place to go and eat and then they leave their stuff alone. They can chill. Yeah. No. So I I just found it interesting... At, at how many sides of this debate are still being discussed and that the real anger is that somebody would dare to feed these creatures. <laughs> well, you know what? If we can put them to work, <laughs> let's figure out a way to put them to Let's employ them. All right. So this is the process. Let's slowly domesticate them by feeding them. And then therefore their brains can grow larger. And then eventually they'll start using you know, recognizable language that we can communicate to them with, and then we can, like, give them little suit and ties and put them to work. Yeah. How about that? Sure. I think that's a great idea. I'm pretty (laughs) sure dogs and cats are going to be ruling this country in 100 years. Right. It's only a matter of time. Well, on the other side of the spectrum involving food and feeding people, there is a food distribution like pantry. I know you've seen them in the neighborhood. They're kind uh-huh. of like the little free libraries, but they're wooden and they say, you know, put your, your dry foods and your canned goods in here and then people can come and get them. Or I, I'm not sure if somebody picks them up and then distributes them. I'm not really sure how it works, but I do know that there is one on uh, the 7200 block of Bryan Street in West Mount Airy. Mm-hmm. We've seen it. We used to live right around there. And apparently what has started happening is they're seeing things ending up in the street from the dry goods they're seeing uh rice all over the street they're seeing noodles all over the street they're seeing lentils all over the street and somebody took pictures of it sounds like a dream and said you know here we go here are a few you know help please help here are a few pictures of the most recent examples of quotes food distribution on the hundred block of west durham street i have traced the distribution back to the 7200 block of brian and that little food cupboard. The distribution generally continues to the corner of Bryan and West Durham and down the entire block of the uh, of 100 West Durham Street. This has been going on for the past two weeks, and I'm really getting tired and fed up with it and tired of cleaning it up. Anybody who may have more closely observed the distribution, if you have a ring doorbell or if you've seen anything, please comment and let us know so we can try and find out who's responsible for this. So people started commenting on the thread and, you know, someone was like, you should talk to the houses that surround the bank, see if they've Mm -hmm. seen anything, of course. And then somebody said, yes, you know, today I did see two preteen boys pulling a bag of lentils out of the food cupboard and basically cutting a hole in it and then walking down the street to let it. Intentionally? Correct. Why? Exactly. Why would they do that? Why not? I Why mean, not? What what else do they have going on? I don't I, know. I mean, but I mean, come on though. I agree. I'm not saying it's right. I 100% say please talk to your children and tell them not to vandalize and destroy the food in the food cupboard that needs to go to people in our neighborhood. I mean, I guess you know need. when you're a kid sometimes I mean Doing stupid stuff just seems entertaining. I mean, sure. You know, I mean, when I was growing up, kids threw rocks at school windows until they broke. Yeah. Why not? (laughs) Until they were caught. You mean you did. Oh my gosh, you're talking about yourself. I'm not talking about me. (sighs) I am talking about somebody I knew, though. And boy, did they get in a lot of And you didn't turn them into the authorities? I mean, I'm just kidding. They got caught. They got in trouble. They had to do community service for the school for like six weeks. It was crazy. So, what did you have to do? It wasn't me. (laughs) I did not witness it, nor was I a part of it. Okay, you caught wind of 
cut. No, I watched the kid getting punished by his parents when he got caught. Oh, boy. <laughs> and I do say he. It was a he. Girls wouldn't do something so, dumb like that. So what like would that. be the punishment for, for folks dragging bags of lentils across the I mean, I think they should have to start collecting more food, and I think they should have to replenish. You know, yeah. I mean, if I were their parents, I would make you know, if they got allowance, I'd make them spend it or I'd make them do chores in order to earn money to go buy back the things that they destroyed. I mean, I know they're dry goods and they're sitting there and it just seems like, OK, but yeah, yeah I mean, it could be potential food for somebody. Exactly. Right? I mean, that that's a waste. And I'm sure in their mind, they're like, we're not littering because it's food. Right. It's going to it's going to go away. Animals are going to eat it. Something's going to happen. But I mean, it, maybe not even thinking that far ahead. To be right. You're right. You. They're probably not, especially they're if they're preteens. But like, yeah. So, so there are a lot of comments about it. A lot of people, once the person said they saw preteens doing it, they were just like, kids need to have supervision. Kids need to have something to do. These are clearly latchkey kids who are on their way yeah. home from school. Yeah, I mean, school. what do you do in that case? It's hard. Don't. But it, it takes a neighborhood, right? It, it takes does. a village. It takes a community So a child. you know, instead of when you see something and you just like say, well, there are those kids again, try and speak up, try and say something. And I know it's a double-edged sword because I remember when I was talking about this with a, a friend of mine a couple years ago about kids in Philadelphia where she said straight up, I would never confront a Philadelphia child. Absolutely not. If they saw them doing something, they would absolutely not say anything to them. And I said, why? And they said, because a kid in Philadelphia could whip out a knife on you or punch you in the face or scream at you or like do like something crazy. And I was like, seriously, is that what kids do these days? Do kids just have zero respect for people who are older uh, than them? It just depends. You can't, you can't say that across the board. Exactly. That's kind of what I thought. I know. But she was like, I know I'm terrified of Philadelphia kids. And I said, well, what is this based on? And she said she's seen some pretty intense altercations on buses and at bus stops involving children who are being obnoxious and getting into trouble. And some some adult speaks up to them and they get all up in their face and and it gets ugly. And I'm like, wow, that just blows me away. Well, and then the minute you lay your hand on somebody, then then the law comes in. Right. Well, I mean, I wouldn't. We weren't talking about adults laying their hand on anybody. We were just talking about them saying something. But the the kids, I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, a kid will, you know, kick you and then then run off (laughs) because they can run faster. You don't know who that kid is. So I don't know. It's it's crazy. But if you see anybody taking food out of the food cupboard on Bryan Street, please say something to them. Please don't let them take and destroy the food. Or you could just put a sign out that says, pick up the damn trash. (laughs) That's a whole nother topic, <laughs> whole nother topic for another day. Anyway, that's all I have. All right. Very good. So what are we talking about this week? You got a, got a topic for me? I picked out something just considering my current state. I thought this topic was very relevant in thinking, what am I going to talk about this week? And I'm like, oh, this is what's going on in my life. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners can sympathize, empathize with this topic, and that is burnout. Mm. I wanted to talk about burnout, and I'm sure that's something quite familiar with. Again, this is something that, with a lot of people working remotely these days, but not only that, too, service workers, um, but... Before I get into the the topic specifically of burnout, part of the the impetus of this for me kind of came from this audiobook that I've been listening to that I've subjected you to. Oh uh, yeah. The, the book is called Sapiens. Yes, the book is called Sapiens: A Brief History of Humankind. It's authored by this guy Yuval Noah Harari and 
it's actually narrated by this guy, Derek Perkins, this voice actor who really knows how to emphasize the salient points he makes in the book. But to be honest, and you tell me, it's probably not a huge page turner, right? Mm-hmm. Like a thesis on human evolution, it carries you from the very early stages of evolution and then it brings you into known human history and it starts to dissect elements of human culture. And I actually haven't finished the book yet, but it's starting to get into future prospects for humanity. But it's it's a really interesting book if you're totally a science geek, but also, again, it draws some conclusions based on factual elements, but it kind of gives you a slightly different perspective about the inner workings of humanity. But one aspect of it in particular that really jumped out at me, and he spends like a whole chapter just talking about social economic systems, specifically focusing on capitalism, and he describes it as a religion. So this is also, for some folks, maybe a paradigm shift in how we view economics in our country and our social systems. But if you think about it, what makes up a religion, there's four basic components. One is you have to have beliefs and believers for a system to exist, whether it's a religion or an ideology. There's a code of ethics, and those are captured somewhere in texts or some form of writing. And then there are tied with that rituals and ceremonies. So based on those four elements, capitalism definitely falls under that category. And if we think about maybe just looking at the the past 150 years in this country, you had this movement after World War II of what's called neoliberalism. So it's like a revitalization of the economics that occurred in this country in the later 19th century. So that was economic liberalization, privatization, individual entities that own businesses, less government management, deregulation. It also expands the the net to, to cover globalization, free trade. Again, the overall reduction of government spending and management to regulate the system. Now, by design, we all know that neoliberalism nurtures inequality by putting personal profit at any cost above all else. Now, I'm not making any sort of political commentary or commentary with regards to capitalism. I have, you know, whatever. Capitalism is capitalism. There's good and there's bad. But by again, by design, it naturally tends to offset Profits, you you see this narrowing, which we have seen in the past 50 years of the middle class. It molds a culture similar to the late 19th century, again, where we see reduced presence of worker representation. You've seen unions, right? Unions Mm -hmm. have have dwindled over the years, although they're starting to make a resurgence. They sure are. Wage stagnation, shrinking the middle class. And then, of course, you have a generation that has come out of college strapped with student loan debt with a degree that doesn't afford them the kind of salary jobs that they were told, hey, this is what you're going to get when you come out of school with this degree. So you couple that with inflation and rising housing costs, there's this massive wealth gap. This is like the hot topic, right? right? Everyone knows this. For folks, though, that do have a job, they tend to put a lot of hours into their work, partly, partly because... Well, so there's demands from employers, but it's also something that's inherently ingrained in our society. I mean, that's part of the 
culture of capitalism, we're raised with this idea that you put in your best and you get rewarded. Right. And that gap of what you have to put in in order to get something back out has been steadily increasing. If you compare it to, say, Europe, whether you're talking Germany, France, uh, I've, you know, I spent some time over in Europe where you go out for lunch, you take an hour and a half break. Mm-hmm. People get, compared to American standards, they get excessive vacation. I think like Europeans get, I don't know, three months or something. It's it's huge. Wow. They get a lot of vacation time and, of course, maternity leave, paternity leave, and uh, socialized health care, all that stuff. Again, I'm not going down the road of comparing economic systems between Europe and America, but just to really emphasize the, the difference there. So the pandemic, of course, it kicked things into overdrive. Jobs are being cut. But the flip side, too, is you have other industries that are working overtime to help fill the gap to produce goods and manage supply chain shortages. So when folks started to hire back, though, wages were still low. And this I'm, t- I'm talking just within the past few years, right? Pandemic hit, people were let go, people were getting economic stimulus from the government, and then jobs were starting to come back. But then wages were still crappy, and people were like, I'm getting paid more by the government. Right. Why <laughs> Why leave this cush situation I have right now to come back and work myself to death for no more money? Exactly. And then you had what's called the Great Resignation or the Big Quit, as it's also referred to, which is it's an ongoing trend, actually. So it rose within the past two years. Yep. And it's starting to plateau, actually. And it's this trend where employees are voluntarily resigning from their jobs. They have this huge gap between their expectations and what the job's actually fulfilling. And they're like, I don't, I, you know, I, I just survived a pandemic. Right. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not going to waste my life putting yep. my time into this job anymore. So people are quitting. But it's not that people are unemployed because employment's still up. Actually, it's going up. It's people that are quitting their jobs because they're finding something better. And they're like, you know what? I'm not wasting my time anymore. So people are being more selective. Employees are starting to really dictate to employers, here's what I need in order to stay. So retention is kind of like the name of the game. But this ties in with this aspect of of burnout. So burnout really is the perfect storm of gaps that exist in the system as a result of the ethical drivers within the capitalist framework. That's me quoting me. Right. right. Okay. So if you think about it, yeah, there's lots of gaps here and there. And to summarize, and this is actually classified by the American Thoracic Society, which is dedicated to accelerating the advancement of global health. So they define it as burnout syndrome or like the industry loves three-letter acronyms, <laughs> BOS for burnout syndrome which kind of spells boss. <laughs> well, without that second S. <laughs> but not really. Okay, so to define burnout syndrome as by the American Thoracic Society, it's triggered by a discrepancy between the expectations and ideals of the employee and the actual requirements or demands of a job. So that's the gap. It culminates in three primary symptoms. So for you listeners, pay attention here because I'm sure everyone can check off the list as we go down. Number one, exhaustion. So generalized fatigue. And that's really from investing time into a task that the individual does not perceive as being value added. 
So th- I'm sure you can think think about an occasion where you've put in uh, so much, maybe maybe 110% above and beyond to the point of exhaustion, and you don't really get anything to show for your efforts. There's no fruit from your labor. You can imagine that's hugely demoralizing. Yeah. Right? Yep. Number two, depersonalization. And this is this is one that I've experienced personally. And it's not that, again, for me, I'm dissatisfied with my job, but definitely I would say I overwork myself. And that is depersonalization is distant or indifferent attitudes towards either your work or your co-workers, actually. Yeah. So it can appear as being callous or cynical or the inability to express empathy with your coworkers. So they're just a number to you, mm-hmm. right? There's no true genuine connection with your work or with your coworkers. And I've been in situations like that before to imagine persistently working in an environment like that. That's got to suck. Yep. And reduced personal accomplishments. So if you think about these two components, they kind of feed into this third component, and that is you have a negative evaluation of the work that you do. You know, you have a perceived poor professional self-esteem. You don't take pride in what you're doing. You think what you're doing is not really meaningful or value-added. Yeah, that can be a huge weight and drive someone into a deep depression, for sure. Yep. So, as a result, folks often feel times very frustrated, angry, and anxious, as you can imagine. Oftentimes, you're thinking about things you got to take care of in the future. Living in the future versus the present, you tend to breed an anxious mind. In terms of physical symptoms, you can experience things like insomnia, in some cases muscle tension from partly from being anxious, um, obviously things like headaches and GI problems, right? These are all stress-related symptoms. And you consider prolonged trauma. It can lead to things like substance abuse and just an overall change in your cognitive mood and your ability to just be excited about things. Just have like this sort of flatline emotional status. Can you imagine? To this point, a lot of employers now are starting to shift how they establish an environment in order to retain their employees. So this guidance here from the American Thoracic Society, they actually have a a bullet-pointed list, guidelines for employers to help provide better working conditions based on these six standards. So one is skilled communication and collaboration that's number two, which really to me are both communication. The third component is effective decision making. So this this is really where management steps in. Having appropriate staffing, so having the appropriate number of people to help manage workloads so that people aren't being overburdened. Meaningful recognition. I do some good work. I want to get compensated for that. And how do you keep your employees motivated through compensation? And having an authentic leadership. I think that's another huge thing. So I'll kind of close with, it was an article I read from the Harvard Business Review that summarizes 11 trends that we're starting to see shape the work environment starting in 2020 and beyond here. And these really reflect some of those six components 
and how employees are really forcing employers to reshape the work environment. So I'll go through them kind of in quick succession here. And please chime in because I'm sure you, along with our listeners, can appreciate some of these, whether you're a hybrid worker or you're a service worker, right? They're all relevant. So the big number one issue for employees of the day is fairness and equity in the workplace. So having... Yeah. Yep. So in terms of fairness and equity, so part of that is, you know, if we think about things like sexual and uh, racial discrimination, that's one component, but also thinking about everyone's, you know, differences in lifestyle, right? Because you have some people that have children and they've got to manage childcare. They got to go pick their kid up. They need flexible work hours to allow them to manage their home life and balance that with the work life. You know, I would say my company has really taken the initiative to actively, um, you know, openly discuss and address some of these kinds of things and, you know, provide things like work credits to, to people who need that additional money to manage things like childcare expenses, but also your own personal health care, right? I mean, Doctors only have hours during during the day. During the day, yeah. and most doctors are not open during the weekends. So, but that requires a cultural shift because I've worked in many places up until my current job right now. It's mm-hmm. the first time that I've worked in a place where, you know, I've been there oh, four years. I just celebrated my four year anniversary, and for the first time in my life, I have made it past two years without getting burnout. I am at four years and I am not burnt out in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. And it is because it's the first healthy work environment I've ever been in. That being said, I don't have a ton of, I don't have any employees underneath me. I am the one woman show, but I work for an organization that has employees and we all are treated the same and we all get all the services that we need, which is great. But how long did that take me? I mean, I'm about to be 50 and I've been in the workforce since 1999. So Yeah, it took me this long to finally the last four years to get in a job that didn't do that. Um, Prior to that, you work for these organizations that if you start giving, or at least they felt this way, and this is what needs to culturally shift, they feel like if you give someone the flexibility to do the things they need to take care of their children, to be able to go to the doctors, to do that kind of stuff, right, then the people who don't need those things, right? Look at it and go, well, why does that person get to leave and go do this, this, and this? And mm-hmm. I'm doing the same amount of work and I'm being paid the same amount of money. Yep. And I and it, and it's not. It's not. It's not fair. Why? Why is this not happening? And then they start to experience that inequality and that backlash and and stuff. So it, you you have to create an environment where everybody feels like when you need those things, you can have them. And there are times when you won't need them, and that's great. Please don't use them. But when you do need them please do. And how do you communicate that to the group? Because as a manager, when I worked for a previous organization Mm -hmm. that shall not be named, they definitely chastised me for giving an employee room to do the things that they needed to do. This person had some health challenges, Mm -hmm. some issues, was calling out a lot, was needing to go see a lot of doctors. And basically then they came to me and said, well, is it time to find someone to replace that person? And I was like, they're going through a rough time right now. Like, I'm not going to. And their their point to me was, but how does it look to everybody else 
in the office doing that person's job. It looks like that person's not doing their job and they are and they're all making the same amount of money. It might be time for that person to move on and you need to make that decision as the manager. And I'm like, I don't want to do that to a person. They need this money. They need this mm-hmm. health care. They need the things that we offer. Why am I going to be like, I'm sorry, you're going through a rough time. I think I need to let you go and find somebody who can do your job without needing to leave and go to the doctor, without needing to leave and deal with their life problems. Like, which that's not humanity, right? That's that's not how we operate. Yeah, as humans. And, and it and that actually kind of segues into one of the other bullet points on this list, and that is employees are looking to see from the employer some moral ethical stance. They're more interested in having employers that have some position, whether it, I mean, doesn't necessarily have to be a directly political position, but, you know, as things come up in the news, like the war in Ukraine, we, we have a weekly leadership meeting and the CEO just chimed in to say, our hearts go out to those folks in Ukraine. You know, if anyone's interested, we're setting up a, a relief fund to send money you know, over to to Ukraine. So to see employers take an active role in things that more like directly impact people at home and, you know, you take that stuff to work with you. So it's really hard to just compartmentalize and stuff that in a drawer. So I think seeing more work environments that are adapted to the personal nature of the employees is going to be huge. Another one, and I'm not going to go through the entire list here because it's lengthy and we don't want to bore our our listeners, but just to touch on a few others that are really interesting to me, because I've I've seen a lot of this in discussion. There have been some academic experiments around this and some companies in Europe that have adopted this, and that is a four-day work week. Mm -hmm. So it's one way to manage increasing pay. So if you can't afford to pay your employees more money, compensate them with more leisure time. I love my four-day work week. I know you do. <laughs> yep. Thank you for reminding four me. Four years every of a four-day work week. It's awesome. But yeah, if you can imagine, because again, it's something that we don't, I don't think, prize enough as Americans, but to take advantage of leisure time, to actively invest in leisure time and to have your employer say, okay, we're going to move to a four-day work week in some of the studies that I've seen come out of Europe in cases where employers have done this, they've seen productivity not only comparable, but in some cases exceed what they see people I'm super out. productive in my four uh-huh. days. <laughs> I'm crazy productive. I'm the most productive I've ever been in any job of my whole life mm. in my four days each week. Uh, and just some of the other ones here, I'll, I'll just kind of maybe talk from a 10,000-foot view. Uh, a lot of them are sort of in the context of, of hybrid work environments, which are only going to continue – uh, or remote. And with the remote piece, and this is part of the great resignation, is that with people working remotely, they're not they're not landlocked anymore. So if I wanted to work for a company in the UK, I can still do that mm-hmm. from the comfort of my own home. Yep. So that frees people up to be more selective, to be more empowered, to select or choose jobs. And we all know if you ever need a pay increase, your best bet rather than bugging your manager if you've been working there for like i don't know five ten years and you still haven't gotten a raise you probably need to change jobs yep so give yourself two or three years if you haven't gotten promoted within that time or gotten a a significant increase in pay then you need to find a job somewhere else yep and get compensated that way 
So a lot of these things, again, just kind of feed into that. And as, as you know, with automation, I mean, heck, AIs are replacing attorneys now. So even white-collar jobs are no yeah. longer safe yep. from technology. You're going to see a shift in how employees and employers view the workforce and hopefully address the issue of burnout. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I fully agree with all the things. That, that, and, I, and there was a lot I didn't know about that. So thanks for sharing. Thanks to Sapiens. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I'll, I'll let you know how that book turns out once I'm done. Yeah, but. I look forward to it. All right. Well, stick around, everybody. We have um, a throwback for our next segment, Who Are the Musicians in Your Neighborhood? Digging into the archives. All right. Enjoy. Stick around. We'll be right back. You're listening to 92.9 FM G-Town Radio. time now for Who Are the Musicians in Your Neighborhood? And today we are so excited to be joined by Isaac Stanford. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Wonderful to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, How about you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? All right. Um, Well, first of all, thanks for having me here. This is awesome to be in the studio here. so I assume you guys brought me in here to talk about musical things. We did indeed. Yeah. And just to maybe give an introduction to the listeners out there, I know you are involved in probably a number of projects, but most notably, Slowy and the Boats. If anyone has ever stepped foot outside their front door in the Mount Airy Germantown neighborhood and actually gone to any venue that hosts live music, Chances are you probably encountered Isaac. Yeah, I'm out there. Well, I was. I feel like I haven't been out in clubs for a long time. But um, yes, Lowy and the Boats is a little five-piece band I put together back in 2013, I think was when we started out. And we started um, just getting together in my friend David's uh, he, he was living in West Philly at the time and we were like, just like getting together and playing some steel guitar tunes and hanging out, um, Mike Lackey on bass. Um, and we had a couple different folks at first. Freddie wasn't in the band. Freddie Berman is who I'm alluding to your friend and mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and Freddie Berman came along a little bit later. We had, uh, Nate Skiles in the band for a long spell and uh, right now we got your neighbor Brennan Ernst on guitar, so another musician of Germantown. Um, but yeah, we play all kinds of old steel guitar instrumentals and um, sometimes have some singers, uh, the great Shannon McGill. And uh, more recently, we've had Steve Stanislaw singing some stuff on some stuff we recorded more recently. Yeah. But I think what's really unique and interesting about the project, well, the Number one, the flavor of music you're playing is not what you would typically find in a club or any place hosting music in Philadelphia. It's instrumental primarily, but number two, you are playing a very unique instrument that most people aren't playing in Philadelphia. Can you tell us a little bit about that? (laughs) Yeah, man, that's the secret to my success is pick something that nobody else is playing. Um, So yeah, it's a steel guitar and... um, that was kind of the whole uh, impetus for starting the band was like I and actually learning the instrument was I heard uh, some Jerry Bird songs, the great steel guitar player. And um, I was just like, man, 
this is so cool. It's such an amazing repertoire of tunes. Like there's like a whole songbook of steel guitar tunes, steel guitar music. And um, there's, you know, uh, songs that were written by steel players for steel. And they're very idiomatic in terms of the tunings that the players use. But then, you know, steel is just such a versatile instrument that it can kind of play anything and it just holds a melody. And uh, so, yeah, man, I just was like, nobody's playing this stuff. And I need to learn how to play steel guitar and then learn all these songs just to see if I can put a band together that actually performs these tunes live. Cause I had never seen a band do stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Now, just for our listeners uh, sake, can you tell us a little bit about what the steel, when you say steel guitar, what does that look like? What sort of music or styles does it lend itself to? Yeah, no, that's a good point because when I say steel guitar, a lot of people say like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know steel guitar, like, um, you know, Trinidad steel drum music, um, or they, they think of all kinds of things um, when you say steel guitar. Um, but it refers to just basically a guitar that you're playing horizontally um, with a slide. So you're fretting the, the guitar with a slide and then playing with finger picks. And it, uh, it originally was a Hawaiian innovation on the guitar. And then it became... Uh, it became popular in all genres of music. You know, Hawaiian music came to the U.S. Uh, mainland in the early 1900s and just kind of blew up with this uh, touring Hawaiian music reviews. And um, and then it filtered into country music. It filtered into blues music and all, you know, all types of genres. And it just, you know, people play jazz on it. It's just it's such a versatile instrument that um, it can fit into anything. And so I play bluegrass. I play the dobro, which is like an acoustic version of the steel guitar. And um, it's got a big resonator cone in it. And then I play pedal steel, where there's actual pedals and knee levers adjusting string tension. And, um, you know, that's a more recent innovation, probably from the 1950s is when that started. But with slowing in the boats and a lot of what I play is just a it's a lap steel or a console steel guitar, basically strings stretched across uh, an electric guitar pickup. So it's very simple in its uh, creation in a way, but it is like extremely um, demanding technically because it just um, demands that you spend so much time, you know, any instrument does, but to be able to make music on that, there's something about it that the simplicity is very much at odds with its technical demands. No, it's super cool. And you know, it's interesting. Like I think about maybe in the world of musicians, artists, you know, there's guitar icons. The only person I can think of like pedal steel that would be iconic would be like Robert Randolph. Yeah. Robert Randolph is probably one of the most visible players out there today. Um, but and he comes from a whole, you, you know, the other amazing thing about the steel is, you know, it started with Hawaii, but then like I was saying with country music and all these other genres, there's a whole genre that Robert Randolph comes out of the sacred steel genre where it was adopted by, you know, African-American churches and it became a praise instrument. And Robert wow. Randolph comes out of that church tradition of steel. Um, you know, iconic pedal steel players. If you've listened to any music recorded out of Nashville, uh, you know, or anywhere in the last 50 years, you've heard Buddy Emmons. Um, and nowadays, you know, guys like Greg Lease, um, he plays on stuff you, you know, you just hear pedal steel 
on Ray LaMontagne albums mm-hmm. or on, um, oh man, his, you know, Alison Krauss, uh, Robert Plant stuff. He's, he's just played with everybody, an amazing discography. And so it, it does filter into different traditions and um, there are guys out there doing it. But it's it's a uh, usually like off on the stage in the shadows, and you know it's buried in the mix on the recordings, but it's there. Well, yeah, and it's kind of hard to say move around on stage with a, a lap steel. Yeah, it's pretty static, um, <laughs> and it's a lap steel. You know, it's called a lap steel because you sit and it just like sits on your lap. Um, so more recently, I actually to kind of get more uh, m- more movement or be able to, I-, I have actually started playing it on a stand, standing up. So, you know, even with the lap steel, I got an old stand that was probably made in the 1940s and, um, just set it on that thing and I can, uh, play standing up with a volume pedal. What would you say is your favorite thing about being a musician in Philadelphia? I like asking this question. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, that's a good question. Um, Philly, and being a musician in Philly is like, it's the best because um, it has afforded me just like an incredible amount of different and varied opportunities to be in different settings that like, I don't know, you know, it, it's just like for me, it's the perfect mix of um, being able to push myself and try to improve musically because I'm just good enough to get gigs that are like maybe way out of my league for some reason in Philly or to get gigs that are just put me in, in weird context, you know, like I have uh, played steel guitar with ballet X, which is a contemporary ballet company. And Mm. we just toured this show this past summer that had originated in 2014, 2015. And, you know, to be able to play steel guitar with a ballet, like, where else are you going to do that? Except Philly, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Exactly. Um, and, and just like there's a little club scene and the other musicians in Philly. It's such a nice community. You know, we had a like a monthly residency in Maniunk at this club, Dawson Street Pub, that was just like a hub of great musical vibes. You know, people would come through there and um, it seemed like, Every musician in Philly, not everyone, and you know, there's a bunch of. But it tracked a lot. That was that was the yeah. the, the regular go to for me. Yeah. And, um, you know, when things shut down, that was hard. Uh, and I think what they're just starting to gear up this month coming up is the first show. I'm I've been hearing that that it's coming back. So yep. Yep. yeah, yeah. Freddie texted me and said, "You got to get in touch with Dave Wilby. It's coming back." Yep. Yeah. So hopefully, yeah, we were on a run there seven or eight years, and. Uh, once a month for a long time. Yeah. Well, and the stuff that you guys are doing, the, the intimacy of that space, you just, you're just washed with, with the music. I mean, it's just, it's pretty incredible to be in the audience, you know, watching. So. Yeah. I've, and you know, I've been an audience member there a lot. Cause I, I go through there when there's, you know, it's like I said, it's just such a communal thing or was, and hopefully will return as such, but um, yeah, you just catch some great music there on off nights, random, you know, mm-hmm. Thursday night, there's a great band. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. Why don't you tell us a little bit, maybe switch gears a little bit, uh, alter ego here. Okay. So you gig in, you're p- playing music. What are you doing during the daytime? Cause I know you have a profession that ties in with the music piece, but yeah, I, you know, I've been a middle school teacher now for 16 years. 
um, in Cheltenham School District. And so it's right across the city line from where we are in Mount Airy, Germantown, across Cheltenham Avenue. And uh, Cheltenham School District is great. It's, you know, I was before um, becoming a teacher and restarting my musical ambitions, I had studied politics and, and studied history in college and then worked in politics briefly. And I went back to get a teaching certificate, you know, thinking working with kids would be a great way to spend time and a meaningful profession. And, um, it has been, man, you know, um, teaching seventh graders is not easy and I teach social studies. Um, but it does, you know, social studies, most people assume I'm a music teacher since, um, if they know me through the music scene, but, um, social studies has been my, my gig there. And it's, it's great because social studies connects to everything, you know, and just like my, um, I was talking about this recently with somebody else about, how, you know, you're saying in Philadelphia, what's great about it musically is I can connect to all these different scenes, whether it's bluegrass or ballet or, you know, jazz, whatever, you know, there's just great singer songwriter, but in social studies, you know, it, that's the subject that connects all the other ones, you know? So I tell my, we listen to a lot of music in my classes and I use music a lot. Um, I have a little MIDI trigger, uh, keypad that I have little sound effects on and, um, so music and sound is a big part of my classroom experience. And I try to, I've been able to bring in some different voices into the classroom through my connections to the, you know, theater world and the, the music world. Well, uh, we're going to hear a song. Yeah. What selection do you have for us? Well, we, we actually released a couple things um, this past summer. And so we had our two song EP um, wave and ebb tide. And I think, um, sensing a theme here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Hey, it's all thematic, right? Um, we're slowing in the boats after all. Um, but yeah, I think the B side of that, uh, 45, which is, you can actually get a 45 RPM vinyl record if you're so inclined for that type of thing from high tide recordings. Um, but the B side of that is this great, uh, Robert Maxwell tune called ebb tide. And it's a nice, mellow tune, and uh, yeah, hopefully people dig it. Okay, so slowing the boats, ebb tide. Ebb tide, yeah, All right. man.
Well, that's got a very I uh, like it. Very like smooth R and B, like old school kind of R and B feel, man. and to hear the lap steel on top of that. Is... Yeah, it's um, it's a great melody. You know, it's it, it's been covered by just countless artists. Sinatra did it. Um, it's been it, there are some versions of it, but it was it's kind of a tune for me. You know, that was below the radar. I you know. It wasn't a standard tune in my head until I heard um, it was a ukulele player, Otto San, that uh, his version of it. And I was like, man, that kind of just like took me back. And just and, and the song is like written to kind of mimic the the ebb and flow of the tides. You know, yeah. it's like the, if you hear it build towards this bridge and then it kind of, you know, it just has this great dynamic thing just built into the melody and the the song well, structure. the three four man you just you can't beat the oh, three man, four it's sweet it's sweet yeah <laughs> that, that's how you get people to get up and slow dance mm-hmm. no doubt so i have to ask slowing the boats how did you come up with the name man the slowing the boats name has prompted more uh confusion in people they they you know, it's it's funny hearing and seeing people's reaction to it because they're at first they're like, "Is this a joke or something?" I don't know, and it kind of is. You know, it kind of started as a joke that then just kind of took on, uh, you know, got legs and stuck with us. But um, we are, <laughs> you know, we were learning all these like uh, Hawaiian theme tunes, um, and we were learning all these tunes by this great steel player, Speedy West, and. You know, if you never heard Speedy West, we do a bunch of his tunes. Um, he was a legendary steel player and just such an amazing uh, virtuoso player. He played with Jimmy Bryan and has all these great like guitar steel duo uh, records and songs they recorded. But um, when we were starting out the band, you know, we didn't have a name. And and um, uh, my friend Tim Sonnefeld it was playing guitar with us at the time, and he just started teasing me and calling me Slowy, you know, in comparison to Speedy. <laughs> and uh, it was just like such a stupid nickname, like Slowy. It's not even like a thing, but um, you know, Speedy makes sense, but Slowy makes no sense to call somebody Slowy because it's not really a word. But then you made it. A but thing. then we made it a thing, and then you know, it's kind of a combination of that and one of our uh, signature tunes that we do, which is Slow Boat to China. Um, but it's funny because that, the name has just kind of, we've, I don't know if we've grown into it or what, because, you know, it was one of these things at first, it was like, we can't possibly call ourselves slowing the boats. That's just ridiculous. But then after time, people are like, man, I, you know, I love the name. And it's it, perfect. And yeah. it, it fits our vibe. Um, all these nautical themes that we've worked into our artwork. And, um, in fact, like a couple of years ago, this woman from, Paris or outside of Paris got in touch with me and her name was Slowy, her last name. And she's her, she's Julie Slowy. And she's uh lives in France. And she was like, This is you know, what what's the deal with your band name? We're Slowies. And I'm, she bought like 15 t-shirts for everybody in her family. That's awesome. <laughs> That's fantastic. But you never know what a band name is gonna, you know, what the tie is gonna bring yeah. in, so to speak. Haha. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing the whole thing theme you've built around it and then you have like when you guys perform you have this little sign that's got like bamboo edging on it and that the signage is important i i realized yeah you know it's like what makes a band and you know we've got uh the they're great players in the band we've got a bunch of tunes um but there's something about a light up sign 
<laughs> that uh, seals the deal. And, and you know, I kind of came upon it by accident, but I, I was home one winter break, uh, just in my house by myself. And I was like, I might go crazy here. You know, I don't know if you ever spent uh, a winter break by yourself, but you got to have a project to work on. And I was like, I'm going to make a light up sign. And so I've made a couple versions because I have a, a bigger version that goes on my, I have a double 10, two uh, different tunings, two 10 string tunings. And then I have another instrument that's a single uh, uh, neck eight string. And so I made a little smaller version of the sign. So I got a little portable when we, when we went down to Florida to play at this Tiki Fest down there, I had to have like a travel rig, you know? <laughs> I was like stressed. I was like, we can't just go down to this Tiki Fest and not have our but, sign. Yeah, no, the sign. So important. I had to build a, a travel rig. <laughs> That's <so awesome. laughs> That's great. That's so awesome. Hey, Isaac, thank you so much for stopping by and yes, chatting thank with us you. today. Absolutely. This was great yeah, this to is have wonderful. you. So again, please remind us what gigs you got coming up so folks in the neighborhood who are listening know when to catch you and where yeah, to catch well, you. Yeah, well, keep your uh, ear to the ground as far as music coming back to Dawson Street Pub because hopefully that will be imminent and uh, hopefully we can regain our uh, monthly, our title there as longest running monthly band in the history of Dawson Street Pub. So that will be coming back soon. And then we got these Christmas shows in Asbury Park, December 5th. We're playing in the lobby of the Asbury Hotel. And then that's going to be, I think, like 4 to 7 p.m. And then we'll be back in Asbury Park just like five days later, December 10th, for our actual, you know, we do a Christmas party. Usually we try to do one every year. And this is uh, hosted by our label, High Tide Recordings, at Langusta Lounge, right on the boardwalk, December 10th. Nice. Very cool. Well, thank you. Thank you again for being with us. This is great. Thanks for having me. And I'll see you in the neighborhood. All right. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed our throwback episode. Uh, be sure to tune in on March 9th for 4 to 5 p.m. And we'll be back with a fresh, brand new episode of What Do You Know About That? Thanks for listening, everyone.